Hello and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. This week, our guest is Matt Ipcar. I'm Matt Ipcar. I'm the Executive Creative Director at Blue State Digital. I think that I am a, a herder of creativity in a lot of ways and someone who does actually get my hands in the work when I can and when it makes sense because I think I would die if I didn't do that. In his role at digital strategy and technology firm Blue State Digital in New York, it's Matt's job to find creative ways to help organizations better connect with their audiences. Focused on fostering relationships for the digital world, in the past, Matt has worked on presidential campaigns for Barack Obama and helped the Labour Party develop their own online strategy. On a campaign, you know, we work with designers, digital directors, policy people as a broad description, but like people who are in charge of taking the candidates' hopes and dreams and, and thoughts about the way things should be and making them into simple to read policy points and manifestos and stuff like that. We work with people to set up testing plans and plans for optimization. We help people organize their campaigns, like who are the people that you need? What does the design team look like? How many people is it? What kind of printer do you need? What kind of photo equipment? Like very tactical stuff, like what kind of space do you need? How should teams be situated on the floor plan in a campaign office? So a little bit of the almost like McKinsey type organization management like designing a team rather than designing a logo type work. And I never thought that I would be doing that, but it is another part of design that I think is is truly important. Like what are the lines of communications between designers and copywriters and rapid response team and the, you know, the, the public relations team or the press relations team and stuff like that. Reflecting on a standout project from the past year, Matt extols the power of design to help bring about real tangible change. Over the last year, I've, I've worked on some pretty amazing projects and th also things that are new skill sets for me. So we worked for CARE, which is a big charity, care.org. They changed their mission about 10 years ago to focus on women and girls. And they, they had received a lot of funding for this program that has done amazing, amazing, amazing work in Bihar, state of India, with over 100 million, like 103 or 105 million people. And people weren't going to the doctor and for good reason, because you would go to these hospitals and healthcare centers and like maybe even if you could see a doctor, the, the facilities were dirty, there was no process, there was just a breakdown in so many different levels of patient care, facility care. So the challenge was not so much Blue State, can you come and fix this gigantic systems design problem? The government of Bihar was interested in doing that, and uh, CARE was interested in doing that, and the Gates Foundation was interested in doing that. And so 10 years ago, they began funding what became the transformation of healthcare in Bihar. And the success was massive, massive. The numbers are just incredible. Like tens and tens of thousands of babies were saved. And, you know, now it's not the best in the world, but it's working. And they want to scale that program in other countries, Cambodia, other countries that, that CARE works in, Cambodia and other states in India and other places in the world that CARE doesn't work in because it's worked. So the, the brief was, and the problem was, how do we tell this story? We've never told this story. And so we went in and we were like, okay, tell us the story that I just told you. And it was a day-long meeting of PowerPoints and graphs and charts and numbers and statistics that all pointed to progress. You know, they didn't know what they wanted. And I think, like, 
you know, how we define strategy is at, at Blue State is how, how can you get from point A to point B? And sometimes figuring out what point B is and sometimes helping you figure out what point A is. Um, and it's like really just figuring out what that path is, the things that you have to do. So when we went in, they weren't sure what they wanted to do. Maybe it was a website, maybe it was a, an email program, maybe it was a magazine, maybe it was a video. And we realized that we wanted to do a video for them, but not a normal like Instagram 20 second, 10 second video that things have gotten so short and attention spans have gone, you know, so much smaller. We felt that this needed like a six or seven minute explanation of these three huge parts of why this program was a success. And not only that, the audience was not the people who were giving $25 to care. It was not the people who were going to sign an email list against child hunger. The audience for this was the government minister sitting in an office in some possibly corrupt state in some country where the healthcare is a mess and they are responsible for it and have an inclination to fix it. It was kind of an interesting thing for me of like the audience is not who we think it is. The audience is super small. People who are seeing this are very powerful and just very powerful decision makers, but still can be touched by storytelling in some of the same ways. So we actually went to Bihar um, with a partner um, who had a, a cameraman and a producer um, and did video treatments, did workshops with care to make sure who we needed to talk to, figured out all the different people that we needed to talk to and rode around the country with care and doing all these um, amazing stories. Asked if he would ever consider doing anything else for a career, for Matt, an underlying desire to positively impact the world is crucial. I guess a question that I ask people, the question I ask is, if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? Where would you work? Would you work? I think for me, I love to travel. I love, you know, meeting new people. I, I'm not sure if I would call myself an extrovert exactly, but I do feed off of finding out about new places and like being dropped into a city that I have no idea how to get around. It's more than an adrenaline rush. It kind of like, it's a pleasing feeling for me, whereas many people I talk to, it's not the case. So I think like if I didn't have to worry about money, which of course everyone does, I would travel, but I do travel. And, I, and when I think about the things that I like about travel, it's to make photography or to, to find out about different cultures in the service of cr a creative pursuit or work that I might do in the future. I do feel like I want to make the world a better place and that we all have to do our part in that. And I've always felt that since I was a kid. I never felt the need to stop doing that. And I think that's, that's really the core reason uh, why I do what I do. I think that there's, you know, if you're a young designer or even mid-level designer looking to making a change, you know, in our political climate, it's, it is more important than ever before that we take our jobs seriously, that we know our power and that we make decisions that impact the world in a positive way. I think that it is, you know, doctors have the Hippocratic Oath and all of that to do no harm. And I don't think there's a similar ethics considerations that you learn in school, especially in architecture, in graphic design, for instance, like you don't really learn, don't make Trump posters if you don't want to. For the UK and America, there is like a work ethic that says like, you go to work, you sit down, you do your job, you do, you please your boss. And I think that there's not a lot of people who can do what we do. You can pick and choose. If you're at an agency where you're doing harmful work, selling cigarettes, for instance, or, or arms or something really bad, you have to figure out where your line is. 
we did something for a beer company. I'm like, all right, that's fine. You talk about it, but I think that you really need to take a stand, even if it means moving on from your job to not do work for certain organizations. I can never remember wanting to be anything else than a designer or artist, maybe, or architect. When I was my son's age, like, or my daughter's age, four or five, like, what do you want to do? Like, if I could play with Lego all day, like, that's what I would do. Like, I would kind of build things, create things, have fun um, playing, using my imagination, and then putting those away and taking out a pad of paper and drawing and sketching and, like, playing with tools that were made for much older adults, like rapidographs and T-squares and X-Acto knives. And so I went to a specialized high school in New York called Stuyvesant that focused on math and science. And I was never a good math and science student. I had kind of squeaked in. And I did know that because I, had, I was on stage squad and I helped build sets for school plays and stuff like that, that I was kind of interested in that kind of stuff, building spaces for people and figuring out how someone's going to get from one side of the room to the other without like hurting themselves or in a graceful way. And I knew I wanted to study architecture. I didn't grow up in a wealthy family, so I went to a state school called State University of New York at Buffalo, which is upstate, kind of near Canada, near Niagara Falls, which had um, at that time the only architecture program for, in a state school. So I did that and I liked it. I liked the first two years of studio experience of making plaster models, cutting wood, building little houses. And I knew I kind of wanted to just create and draw stuff and, and do stuff that was more on the design side of things, whether that was industrial design or graphic design, I wasn't sure yet. But I knew that like when we would have architects come in and talk to us about what they did, it just didn't sound fun to me. And I also just didn't have the patience for the math. And I didn't want the responsibility of not being able to erase something <laughs> or press undo or command Z it out. And, and it just made me realize that architecture wasn't for me. My first real jobs, my first real design jobs, one was at a newspaper, the Buffalo News, where I was the guy who created those ads where you see like a whole bunch of cars, like automobiles, like 50 on a page. And each one has a price and each one has an asterisk that says like, you know, no money down or whatever it is. And like the dealers whose ads those were would just be like, can you squeeze in another row of cars? Can you squeeze in another row of cars? And can you make the price bigger? And can you make the deal bigger? And can you make the small print smaller? And like all this stuff, which was kind of dreadful and beautiful at the same time. So I'd be doing those and kind of like local real estate ads. And then from there I worked, well, actually at the same time, I worked there part-time and I worked at Art Voice, which is the Arts Weekly, where I got to unleash photography and typography and um, color and do like interesting layouts and stuff like that, but still all print-based stuff because this was 1996, 1995. Like internet started, but hardly. And then pretty, like, as I was doing that, started, like, had my first embarrassing design portfolio website went up and moved out to California for the internet boom. And that was it. I think going out to California um, with just a, a bit of design under my belt and some, like, a portfolio filled with mostly personal projects, 
you know, it was, it was tough. And I, I kind of went around different agencies and kind of did more professional advertising for Fujitsu and like these, like kind of like the early tech boom uh, kind of stuff. And Wired Magazine had come out and I was like, that was the dream to like work at Wired. I didn't know anyone there. But then I got a job at the company that was to become Travelocity. And it was my first startup culture job. And it was like, they're the ones who pretty much kind of disrupted the entire industry about how we book tickets on airplanes. Um, I remember going there and kind of realizing that this is the future. Like this is, yeah, we're selling airline tickets. Like I'm, not, I'm not doing anything good for the world. I wasn't as interested at that point about that stuff. But like, I can't believe like I, when we came out to California, we, we went to a travel agent and got our tickets because there was no other way to do it. Maybe you could call the airlines at that time. And then now here was this thing where like on AOL, you can now buy tickets with your credit card. And, and then I was doing it for a year and telling people and they're like, no, I would never do that. You know, and I was there for two or three years and met tons of great people and had the San Francisco experience. And, and I remember that just being like an early vision into how things were changing. Matt tells us how he came to work as a principal design leader on both Obama campaigns and recounts the interview process. So my recent career in a nutshell, my background, I worked at Frog Design for many years. They have, I think they still have a London office, um, but they're a global design consultancy, do a lot of like innovation and scenario work. When I was there in the, uh, the mid 2000s, um, they were bought by a holding company, KKR, right around the time that I left and expanded, like kind of blew up. Uh, in a positive way. I left to go work for Fenton Communications, which is does a lot of public affairs and kind of do-gooder type politics and advocacy work um, to start their design team. And while I was there, I sat next to a guy who was renting space in the studio who told me, and we started talking about Obama, and a friend of his was on the campaign. We all knew that design was really strong on the campaign, even at that early stage, and that they paid attention to it. But he said, you know, they're going to expand the design team and the digital team, uh, which they called New Media at the time. And that as soon as Hillary dropped out of the primaries, that I should give his friend a call. And it, that led to a series of two more calls, which got longer and more complicated until I talked to the design director and had like a really great long conversation where I was kind of asking the wrong questions. I was like, so are you doing focus groups and are you doing like, like how are you figuring out what the design uh, is looking like? And his answers were like, it's all real time. Like we're not doing any of the stuff that we were doing at our agencies. And it was just kind of an amazing experience that kind of colored my view on design and creativity and copywriting and moving quickly and trying new things and paying attention to data and paying attention to audience and all of this stuff that I thought I was doing at, at Frog, at the agency. Um, so that was really great for me. Some of the highlights, you know, one was just being there on election night in 2008. Spike Lee was in the office and I got to like meet all these people. And there's one moment that like sticks in my mind so starkly is that we had this idea a couple of weeks before election that we would have a graphic of the map of the United States up. And as each state turned, you know, we would turn it from white to blue if Obama won and white to red if McCain and Palin won. And Scott Thomas, the design director, and myself and Kyle talked about it and, and we decided that we would just do it manually on election night. 
So the night wore on and we were drinking whiskey already, even at that point, like everyone kind of sweating it out. Like the mood was good, but we still never know. And, and as soon as like Ohio got called, Pennsylvania got called, and it became clear that Obama was going to win, we just stopped doing it. And for the next three days, the map just stayed like half done on the website. And like no one ever noticed. And like we didn't really talk about it or like what, what was going to happen. Like finally we, we switched it to a big thank you. But, you know, it was just like one of the most amazing nights, if not the most amazing night uh, in my life. And then the 2012 campaign, the moment that sticks out is... You know, Saul Sender Associates designed the Obama logo, the Rising Sun logo. Jonathan Heffler designed the type, you know, Chronicle and Gotham, or, or have Jonathan Heffler's company. Uh, there's a lot of designers involved. And there was one moment where I, in, t- in 2012, where we kind of wanted to change the look, get rid of the gradients, get rid of like the ethereal white glows around everything. You know, we kind of wanted to make it a little bit more serious. Like now that he was president, we didn't have to use eagles everywhere and all that. So I was playing around with a bunch of different logos with several designers. And I just wrote uh, Obama in Gotham, bold, and added serifs to it. And I was like, "Ah, you know, this looks kind of cool. And then I did it with 2012. And then I did it with Biden. And I was like, this looks great. But like, I'm not a typographer. I don't know if that's correct. And if like, there's anything more I need to do. So I, I reached out to Jonathan Heffler, whose company puts out Gotham. And I was like, I have to show you something. And I'd never met him before. And I walked into his office and he's a really nice guy. And he looked at it and he was like, I love it. And I was like, what do we need to do? And he's like, oh, you know, like here, and he gave, gave a bunch of pointers um, for, for how to make it better. Um, sometimes it is good to show someone who knows more than you do. Uh, about these things, but I think it worked out really well. For many, reaching out to people in industry or creatives they admire can be a daunting premise. But for Matt, it's a worthwhile endeavor and something that he advises emerging creatives do. The days that I work from home and my wife's working from home, she's constantly on the phone, reaching out to strangers, more introverted than me, but has no problem dialing someone's number and saying, hi, I'm working on something. Instead of Googling it for three hours and not finding anything or doing like other kinds of research. You could spend five hours on LinkedIn trying to find a job and you might find something, but you could also just figure out how to, I mean, don't get stocky, but like call someone or email them directly or message them on Instagram. Hopefully this doesn't result in like many like messages to me that I can't answer, but like reach out to people whose work you respect and whose ideas you respect and write them a note. I still do this. I, st- I just wrote to a typographer in Florida whose website was new to me. I had used one of their fonts before and, and just wrote to him and said, listen, like I've been using this, this typeface of yours and, and I just discovered that you have 12 other great typefaces that him and his wife run this small studio. And I, 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 the thing is, don't expect you're going to get a call back. You know? And I never expect that I'm going to get anything back from people. But I did. I, and the next day, I got a, a sweet note from this guy, this designer. It was just like, thank you. That made my day that like, um, let us know whatever, if you ever need anything, blah, 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 blah. And I wrote to Steve Jobs before he died. And, and he wrote back a one word answer to me and I got to show it off around the office, but like, I don't obsess over that, but I think that it's not, you're not going to be annoying if you ask a smart question. 
This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Marianne Hanoon, and the guest was Matt Ipcar. The editor was Ivan Manley. This podcast was recorded as part of Design Manchester in October. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand partners. They include us two, GF Smith, the Paul Smith Foundation, and Google. For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com. Thank you.